0: Thank you very much, brother. That was, that was an excellent presentation. We will now open the floor up to questions and comments from uh, the brethren of the church. And um, raise your hand. Brother um, Landon will bring you the microphone. Bart Shaw. Awesome, brother. That was fantastic. Uh, two questions. Can I do a two-parter? No. <laughs> Shouldn't have asked. <laughs> okay, we'll ask... Uh, Did you come across anything in your reading that said that perhaps David wrote this psalm around the time he would have to be, obviously, close to death, very old, when uh, Adonijah, the half-brother of Solomon, took all the rulers of Israel, the high priest, and got himself proclaimed king. Mm -hmm. And then, I forget there's... David
1: and Nathan had to step in. Yeah, so Nathan Uh went
0: to, to David and said... Do you know what's going on? And then David said, this is not going to happen. They blew the horns. And then there was a big tumult. And, of course, Solomon was anointed king. Yeah. So I was just curious if, obviously, it's, sometimes there's an application you know, in David's life and then in a future ap- Messianic application. Sure. I was just curious if the Jews interpret Psalm 2 uh, when they're trying to fight against Christianity. Do they say, Psalm 2 has nothing to do with the Messiah. It has to do with David saying Mm. uh, that his son Solomon was anointed king, even though all the kings of the earth, all the rulers, all the the high priest was there, Mm -hmm. interestingly enough. I was Mm -hmm. just curious if you knew that. And my second question (laughs) is uh, Revelation 2, church at Thyatira. Uh uh, How is it that he who overcomes, the Christian, is given that power, the same power, to rule the nations. I'm just curious about your thoughts on that.
1: Okay, so on the first one, I mentioned, you know, uh, Robert Alter. Robert Alter, by the way, just in general, if you are interested in studying more about the Psalms, he published several years ago his own translation of the Psalter. He's really a a foremost expert on Hebrew poetry. So, And in his translation of the book of Psalms, he has notes for every psalm. So if you're looking to get started and you want to study psalms more, I'd start, I'd start with Alter's uh, translation of the psalms. So he, has, he documents, he talks about, and, and several others talk about different efforts that some have tried to propose to put the psalm in some sort of specific historical setting in David's life. And really, you know, there's not enough concrete. I think the, the language of Psalm 2 seems to be pointing more outward than inward. Right, Because that was an interior conspiracy that was being driven not by the nations or the kings of the earth, which is the language of Psalm 2, but by God's own people, by the Israelites. So, you know, it seems to me that whatever Psalm 2 is about, if it's set in a particular time in David's life, that he's reflecting on something that's happening right now, as opposed to something that's yet future, it more likely to me that he's talking about some sort of maybe alliance of neighbors that are teaming up to plan some kind of invasion against Israel or something like that. But I, don't, I wouldn't disagree with the idea that when David wrote the psalm, he's writing it. I think he's writing it in view of Solomon's coronation. I think he's writing it in view of Solomon's coronation. I think there's a lot of uh, overlap language between Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. And I think there's a possible, you know, I mean, obviously David was a prophet, but Peter tells us prophets didn't always understand what they, were, what they were prophesying about. So it's very possible, I can't say that for sure, that David thinks Solomon is the son that's promised in 2 Samuel 7. Maybe, I don't know, maybe. Because he's the one that's going to build the house. He's the one that's going to build the temple. And that's a part of the Second Samuel 7 prophecy. The son, this heir, is going to build a house in my name. And that language is used to describe the temple. So if David thinks Solomon is the heir of what Nathan told him in 2 Samuel 7, maybe he writes Psalm 2 with Solomon in mind, thinking Solomon will take my throne, Solomon will read these words, Solomon will build the temple, Solomon will be the one to expand the kingdom, maybe to cover the whole earth. David may have thought that I don't know that for sure. You know, it's hard to get into the psyche of, of uh, people who've been dead for several thousand years. Um, if David knew this was future, then I don't think it matters when he wrote it because he's looking at something that he knows is not going to be fulfilled for a long time off. Now, your second question, you know, I forgot like five minutes ago. What was your second question? The
0: second question was Revelation
1: two. Oh yes. Okay. So this is a tricky one. <laughs> because there are a number of passages in the New Testament. not Revelation 2. Think about uh, 1 Corinthians 6, when the congregation of Corinth is having this issue where, where Christians are taking each other to law. They're taking each other to court. And Paul says, what's wrong with you people? You people are destined to judge angels. You people are destined for something incredible. There seems to be this sort of elevation language that Paul applies to the Corinthians very similar to this kind of language that the Christians were applying to Jesus in Acts and in Hebrews there's some sort of elevation of status that God is giving to Christians now maybe the idea is explored by Paul in adoption language so this is going to get uh, this is going to go down a rabbit hole are there a bunch of questions lined up here yeah okay Well, I'll come back to this because it has to do with in what way is Jesus the son of God? Now, Mike Criswell is here tonight. I'm making eye contact with him right now. And he talked about this issue several years ago about the sonship of Jesus. And I think there may be more than one way in the passages we've read tonight that refer to the sonship of Jesus. And one of those may have a connection to what those kinds of ideas about Christians ruling may be involved with. But, you know, you might never hear that because there are a lot of questions.
2: Yes, this this is
1: my way of truncating the Q&A. Is it working? We'll see.
2: That was masterful, Shahi. I really enjoyed that. Uh, In verse six, when he says, so he says, God laughs at the nations and then he holds them in derision, uh, speaks to them in his wrath and, and his deep displeasure. Then he says, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Ultimately, of course, whatever David had in mind, this refers to Jesus Christ the, as the Messiah. Yeah, no question. I'm wondering if this is a passage that could be used... Uh, to point out to people that God is outside of the context of time therefore not not regulated by time and when God looks down from heaven whether it's Old Testament times New Testament times our future to us whatever uh, the crucifixion of Jesus his death burial and resurrection are present and God is saying I've already done this uh, in in the sense that it's not in doubt God is outside of time and he can see it happening even here when David writes it that's just a question I don't know if that can be used that way or not I'm asking
1: so in uh, the Hebrew language in English we have three verb tenses past present and future Greek has 95 right David About 95 Greek uh, tenses Uh in Hebrew it's 2 you have a uh, completed action or incompleted action. That's it. Completed action would be something that might be present or past tense for English speakers. Incompleted action is something that is yet future. However, there's a really cool thing that the prophets do where they talk about future events and you know they're future events contextually, but they use the Hebrew verb tense that's a completed action. And this demonstrates their confidence that if God says he's going to do something, it's as good as done. It's done. So if you look at the Septuagint rendering of verse 6, this is how they take it, you know, uh, this is back into English, of course. The Septuagint gets really specific with the verb tense, and it says, I have been made king. Have been made king by him on Zion is holy mountain. So this is the Greek effort to relay exactly what you're talking about. It's already done. Now, it wasn't even close to done. David, David lived uh, a 1,000 years before Jesus. But the verb tense is meant to relay that once God has said it, it's a done deal.
2: Some call that the prophetic past.
1: Prophetic, prophetic past, or, or yes, the prophetic complete action. That's right.
2: Clay to France.
3: Thank you very much. Uh, To Bart's point, I think James E. Smith comments on the fact that while most of the Messianic prophecies that were treated that way by the Jews were abandoned after Christians began to use them, they did not abandon Psalm 2 because it was so clearly a Messianic prophecy. So they continued to interpret it as a future Messianic prophecy. They just tried to explain away really clear connections that the apostles make to the experience of Jesus in Acts 4. But I have a question about Psalm 110 and I hope it's appropriate to ask that. I know you didn't talk about Psalm 110, but it's also an enthronement, dominion, messianic psalm. And in keeping with this idea of what did David think, did David view Solomon as the heir of these promises if so do you know how possibly David could have said to of Solomon you are a priest forever Mm -hmm. according to the order of Melchizedek it looks to me like the Messianic Psalms do anticipate a priest king Mm -hmm. did they think Solomon was going to be a priest king or was Mm -hmm.
1: well uh, so My my position on this, which is a little bit of a guess, is that um, when God calls Moses, God has in mind that Moses will be the priest king. And that only after Moses objected and said, I can't do it by myself, I need help, did God say, okay, Aaron will help you. And that the office of priest and king was separated for the Israelite economy between those two men. Moses, who becomes sort of a kingly figure, Aaron, obviously, who is the high priest. And even in the language of Sinai, when God tells the Israelites, you're a kingdom of priests, this this harkens back to Eden, the the royal priests who were given dominion over the whole earth and who ministered in the garden temple in the presence of God. So it seems to me that God's design is always to have these offices combined and that only through rebellion are those offices separated between Moses and Aaron and only because of rebellion is the office of priest removed from 11 of the 12 tribes and given exclusively to the Levites because of the golden calf incident. So I think what David envisions here in Psalm 110 is a restoration of the office of priest king. Whether or not he thought that would be Solomon, I have no idea. But even in the lives of David and Solomon and other kings, there's the performance of priestly-like acts. It's Solomon who oversees the dedication of the temple. It's Solomon who stands before the altar when the animals are being burned and who prays and consecrates the temple in 1 Kings 8. And when all of these events happen, when the ark and the old tent are brought inside and the sacrifices are performed, it's Solomon who is standing there when the glory cloud descends and the priests have to run out. Of course, I don't think Solomon could have gone inside. We learned that, of course, from uh, Uzziah, right, who tries to go inside and offer the incense. It's Solomon who offers the prayer and dedicates the people to God and dedicates the temple To God's service. So there's, uh, in the king, sometimes there's a little little bit of overlap, it seems like, with some of the roles we might traditionally uh, prescribe to the priests, where the kings, at times, because they represent the nation, are doing certain things that we might think only priests were supposed to do. Now, it's very clear from the Torah that kings can't go inside the tabernacle or inside the temple. Kings can't go into the Holy of Holies. You know, obviously they can't do that. But there are times, it seems like when kings are, are functioning in that. So did David think Solomon was destined to restore the priest-king role? I have no idea. I don't know. Maybe, but I, I don't know. I wouldn't say that. Psalm 10 was not my assignment. So maybe next year someone can talk about Psalm 10 and talk about the connection. I mean, it, it doesn't seem like anybody understood Psalm 110 until... Maybe the book of Hebrews, at least verse four, and the connection to the Messiah. Yeah, certainly Peter Peter is quotes quote, but not the Melchizedek part, not the priesthood part. It's not until you get to Hebrews where you see that really explained in a detailed way, how verse four connects with the enthronement of King Jesus.
2: Brother, would you like to maybe spend a couple of minutes on Mark's Mark's question? Really? <laughs> <laughs>
1: her
2: first question
1: so if you read, um, if you read a lot of modern uh, critical commentaries on for example the Gospel according to Mark, you will find that a lot of scholars view Mark's presentation of Jesus through the lens of adoptionist language. And so this is an old heresy in the ancient days of Christianity that's called adoptionism, that Jesus was just a regular human, but he was very righteous, he was a very pious uh, man, and so God adopted him as his son in order to then use him to fulfill the scheme of redemption and have him go to the cross and so on and so forth. So this is a denial of the preexistence of Jesus, denial of the, the true divinity and deity of Christ. But people will read Mark's gospel and they'll say, you don't have anything in Mark like John. In Mark, it seems like Jesus is a pretty normal guy, very righteous. And he's going through life and he's preaching just like other people preach. And he goes to, well, before all that, he goes to get baptized. And at his baptism, God adopts him to be his son. And I think the issue we have here is, is that Jesus as the Son of God may be used, I think, in the New Testament in two ways. One is how John uses it. Jesus is uh, the Logos. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was God, the Word was God. So John gives us the presentation of the preexistence of Jesus, the full uh, deity of Christ before He comes in a human body. And in that sense, he is the one and only, the unique, But the older versions say, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Okay, But there's another way that Jesus is the Son of God, and that's Psalm 2. Because Psalm 2 is not ascribed to Jesus, according to Paul, until his resurrection. So at his baptism... God is indicating, you might think of the baptism of Jesus as his anointing, like when Samuel came to anoint David. God is, anointing, uh, is announcing his plan that this Jesus is my son, but it's not until his resurrection, his ascension, his vindication, his coronation, that God says, today you are my son. Today you are my son. So that's adoptionist language, in the sense that it was applied to the Davidic kings when they took the throne. Now you've become my son because you're my earthly representative and I rule over the earth through you. And that doesn't happen for Jesus until his resurrection, according to Acts 13. So when Mike talked about this, he talked about the struggle. Sometimes it seems like Jesus is the pre-existent eternal son of God. And sometimes it seems like son of God language isn't applied to Jesus until he's on the earth. And I think maybe that's the difference. Sometimes Jesus is the eternal Son of God, and sometimes he's the Davidic King Son of God who doesn't earn that title. And I think that's what Hebrews 1 says. He earned that title when he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after he purified us of our sins. So in that sense, he becomes the Son of God. And that's why I think some people can read Mark and think, well, maybe Jesus was adopted. Yeah, he was. He was. He was adopted as the Davidic king, son of God, uh, in the sense that he defeated death and ascended the right hand of the Father. So, Bart, back to you, that's us too. Because adoptionism is used to describe Christians as well by the Apostle Paul a number of times. Co-heirs with Christ. If he's the king, that means we rule with him. That's the adoption. The adoption that we have received by the name of Christ because of our faith in him and now we're identified with him and his rule over the earth. That'd be my
3: answer.
2: Do you have any closing? I'm points? good.
3: Thank you.